Bay's Tan Talk. Entertaining and informative radio for the Sunshine State. You may be owed some money. After 911 and 411, call 541. That's 727-541-1741. Call Gulfstream Motorsports for a diminished value report. Due to my 28 years experience in the auto salvage business, I'm very good with wrecks. So if your car's been involved in a wreck, call me for a diminished value report. Call 727-541-1741. You may be owed some money for the lost value of your repaired vehicle. And visit us at GulfstreamMotorsports.com. Looking for car shows? Then look no further than FLACarshows.com. On your computer or on your mobile device, FLACarshows.com is a comprehensive list of automotive events plus videos and news articles. Whether you're looking for car shows, cruise-ins, meetups, automotive festivals, cars and coffees, or anything else relating to an internal combustion engine, then this is a site for you. Check it out online or on your phone at FLACarshows.com. Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space, the same moment in time. The corner races at you. You have perhaps a crisis of identity. Am I a sportsman? Or a competitor? If you get into one of my cars, get in the wind. It's slow. And so? You're going broke. How? You spend more than you make. So what do I do? Win the Mille Milla, Enzo. Or you are out of business. This is a gun pointed at our head. You should assign me control of your stock. I have to have all the cards in my hand. Well, half the cards are in my hand. All of us are racers. It's our deadly passion. Our terrible joy. No wonder you need me back. How can I stay with? supposed to save him! You promised me he wouldn't die! The father deluded himself! Two objects cannot occupy the same point in space. At the same moment in time. When so? Well, hello, this is uh, Jackie X. You're listening to uh, Nostalgic Radio and Cars.
Okay, listeners, welcome here to Nostalgic Radio with Cars. I'm your show host, Robert. Run your computers at Google Tantalk, 1340.com. And you can see us live here in the studios in downtown Clearwater. Don't forget to check out our website at GolfStreamMotorsports.com. And thankfully, that ugly mug of yours has not broken the cameras yet here in the studio. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, check out Nostalgic Radio with Cars. We can find out all about us. And if you've missed any of our past shows, you want to listen to some of our shows, you want to tune in tonight, Google NostalgicRadioCars.com. Good evening there, Matthew. How are you? I'm doing fantastic, Robert. How about yourself? Oh, that's another fine, fine day here in, you know, Florida. <laughs> yeah. We're another day in paradise. We haven't frozen to death yet. No, no. Uh, it was a little chilly this morning, though. Yes, there's, it was. There's no question about Which, that. I actually got a phone call from a friend of mine the other day. He lives up in Chicago. He's like, it's 58 degrees up here. Why the hell did you send me your Florida warmth? It's December. What yeah. happened? Well, yeah, it's colder head down here right now. Yes, and it some, is. In some areas. Oh, yeah. Anyway, we got an exciting show for you tonight. We got a very, very special guest for you tonight, and um, the movie clip. You know, as you, if you guys tune in the show all the time, you know that I play clips, and they're kind of segues or kind of little clues and hints to who the potential guest is going to be for the evening. So anyway, uh, this gentleman has got just an amazing background, amazing history. So without further ado, I think what we're going to do is we're going to go um, fire up the stereo. We're going to play a little Miles Davis, right? Is that what you got queued up there? Um, yes, it is. We're going to play a little jazz. Yeah, Death we're Pro ready request. to go. And, uh, and then we're going to play a little clip, and then we're going to bring our special guests on for the evening. So uh, you tune in to Nostalgic right Radio and Cars. Don't touch that dial. Here's a little Miles Davis. What is this? High Speed Chase? Is that the name of this one? Yep, that's what, that's what we pulled out tonight. It's High Speed Chase. Okay, well, I thought it was kind of appropriate since we're going to be talking about fast cars. But anyway, hey, uh, don't touch that dial. We'll be right back.
an era of great glamour and great risk. These men went out to drive these red cars, not knowing whether they would come back alive. When it came to running drivers, Ferrari's approach was the more pressure you put on them, the faster they will go. Well, they were rather like fighter pilots, or gladiators, I suppose. These guys were, they were warriors. discuss the dangers of motor racing. One time Peter almost said something and I said don't. If you get involved with the racing driver you take the risk that something's probably going to happen because it was so dangerous. The racing drivers live very near to death every Sunday afternoon but you'll find that it gives us a greater appreciation of life. This is Brian Rudman, retired racing driver, nine times road racing champion, still racing at 76, and you're listening to Nostalgic Radio and Cars. Okay, we're back, and you tune into Nostalgic Radio and Cars, and it's time to introduce our very special guest for the evening. Um, this gentleman has a very, very strong connection to the mark to ferrari i'm delighted to welcome to the show this evening uh a very special guest a very special person with some very special history luigi canetti jr luigi welcome to the show buonasera buonasera to you as well so i played that clip and i played the clip uh earlier and we typically do this on the show it kind of segues into um the theme of the show and 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 the guest and uh so i i it's obviously the movie Ferrari's coming out, and it's coming out apparently on December 25th. So it's a, a Christmas opening show. What do you know about that show, and uh, have you had a chance to research a little bit? And how does it, how does it play into your your life and your world with you and your father and uh, and uh, North American Racing Team? Well, I can't really say much about the film because I only saw. It. A trailer. Uh-huh. My only comment is that Mr. Ferrari certainly didn't look that way, and neither did Mrs. Ferrari. <laughs> okay. Uh, this is a Hollywood version of what an Italian is thought to be like. Okay. Um, just on, on, on the same note, um, did you get a chance to see the movie Ford versus Ferrari? What was your thoughts on that movie? You know, I'm one of the few people that have never seen it. Really? Honest to God. I was there with the Ford and Ferrari battles, but I was not... I, I'm sorry, I was not a spectator to the... Uh, I was not in the audience uh, at the time it showed, but in the, old, in, in the days when it was running in real life, it was very interesting because you had Ford from Detroit who had tried to buy Ferrari... You had Ferrari, who decided not to sell for whatever reasons he had, but the battles that were ongoing on the track were extraordinary. Uh, the drivers were extraordinary, the cars were extraordinary, and the rules were relatively free if you want, and the excitement was just extraordinary. 
back in the day, so your father used to race for Ferrari, correct? Well, he actually didn't race for Ferrari. He bought a car from Ferrari, well, the earliest ones. He bought the cars from Ferrari, prepared them himself, uh, and ran in one on occasion. But he never raced for Ferrari. That was never, that was never in the cards. I don't know that that would have worked out so well. Okay. Did your father race for Alfa Romero or Lancia or, or uh, Maserati or any other marks besides Ferrari? Well, Alfa Romeo, indeed. But again, a question of the word for. Okay. He brought, he brought the cars up. Most of the time they were owned by clients of his, and they would adopt a co-driver role. So it was buy the car, sell the car, get the co-driver to drive with him because he had already paid for the ride after all and it worked out very well everybody came out extremely well and their success was extraordinary so in the early days your dad had a relationship with ferrari and he became the original importer of ferrari automobiles into the united states tell us that story if you would just briefly the well, highlights <laughs> well, the highlights are basically that uh, there was no money. There simply wasn't any money. Ferrari, the factory at that point, was, uh, well, Modena in Italy was just almost, I don't say non-existent, but they suffered through World War II, and there was certainly no money to just go ahead and uh, build automobiles, if you want, on a lark. But the thing is, Everybody in Italy wanted American dollars, and Dad would be able, was able to convince Ferrari to build automobiles as a way to garner American dollars. And it worked out very well because uh, American dollars came to Italy, Ferraris came to the U.S., and one must remember also that Ferraris were not known clearly until when they came over to the U.S., they would look with a little bit of skepticism, but when Dad won on 1949, and then won Belgian 24-hour race as well, the skepticism somewhat was diminished. but also the clients that he had in the U.S. were very, very important in making the market known, and little by little, through the racing or the road cars, a foothold was established, and sort of, if you want, off we went. Now, what 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 line of work was your dad in before? Was he a professional race car driver, or he was a part-time race car driver? What was his profession before he got into racing, and before he began importing cars to the United States? Well, that's a uh, that's a question of uh, semantics. Uh, his training was as a uh, oh, mechan not a mechanical engineer, but his expertise was in engines, be they aviation or automotive. His training originally when he was in his teens was as a machinist. And from being a machinist, that's where he acquired his skills with either setting up the engines, or setting up or actually building them, 
to a degree that they would be able to uh, last a 24-hour race. So from his becoming a machinist and then working actually for Nicola Romeo well before it became Alfa Romeo, gave him again a foothold into, if you want, that that particular world because Alfa was being made about maybe 10 kilometers away from where my father lived. So it was a short bike ride, if you want. But his training as a machinist, his working for Nicola Romeo, and then subsequently uh, working with Nicola Romeo in Paris, from which the base was build the cars, sell the automobiles, race them, and that's... So it, you could say, what was his profession? Your call. He did it all. He was a machinist. He was a developer. He raced, and uh, it's really a matter of your call. He was a, uh, I don't say a jack of all trades, but he was a master of all of them. Now, at the time when he was with Alfa Romeo, Enzo Ferrari, didn't Enzo work with Ferrari too, besides race Ferraris? <coughs> well, <coughs> Enzo Ferrari had, was affiliated with Alfa Romeo well in the beginning early 30s, I don't know, late 20s, early 30s, Ferrari himself. <clears throat> well, Ferrari himself actually raced early, early on uh, the Fiat automobiles, which were very, very fine racing cars. And from there, uh, he had the racing team of his own that raced Alfa Romeos. Interesting. Um, okay, so then... Is it, it there's a the story that goes basically like this at the time Ferrari was building basically race cars, and then your dad had approached him and said, "There's this American market out there. We need to build street cars for the American market." So, is there truth to that? Well, you can you have to you know take it in several steps. Okay. After the after the war, Ferrari had only made a few cars. And right. He didn't know a great deal about uh, uh, the American market or anything outside of Italy, really. So the cars that he made were very, very few and basically were uh, small displacement racing cars with uh, very good drivers. But again, right after the war, we're not talking about Formula One today. This was really, uh, I would say, hands in your pocket trying to find the money to go racing. There wasn't much money. And uh, so Dad knew Ferrari naturally for years before, and he went to him for the purpose of getting Mr. Ferrari to build road cars. And because that's where the money was. You weren't going to make any money selling racing cars. So they started on a very, very, very small stage and uh, grew little by little. But Dad's expertise was also with the Ferrari, with customers from Alfa Romeo before the war. He was also a uh, principal man in France because of his connections in France, which were superb with Alfa Romeo, Daibo. So many of his, many, we're not talking many, so a few of his customers uh, were French, and they were extraordinary people who could afford their cars. They were uh, talented, either in industry or as drivers from before the war. 
So he had a roommate, Leon Tatty, from his friends before the war. And not so ready kind of telling me I really didn't know much about this. You know, these little red Italian animals. That was not something that was looked on uh, with any knowledge. Well, Alfa Romeo was known, but Ferrari was simply just unknown. Um, and now, when when your dad came to the United States, what year was that? That was in the early forties. Okay, did he did he set up domicile here, and did he have any kind of a business, or was the what, what was what was the thing that brought him to the United States? That that how and and how the the relationship and the 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 distributorship for Ferrari into the United States. How that how that basically evolved? Well, those are separate questions. In okay. other words, he, he came over here <clears throat> with uh, the intention of uh, running at Indianapolis with the French champion uh, Rene Dreyfus and several others to race at Indianapolis. And again, they didn't know a great deal about it, but that was that was really the idea of the thing, and they basically never went back. But the thing is, he was an enemy alien. Now, that's a big deal because he was not supposed to be anywhere near anything to do with the war. And yet, his skills as a machinist, I mean, we're talking about really skillful. We're not talking about the the machine fellow down the street. He was hired by Rogers Aviation or Rogers Company, in Long Island, as an experimental engineer, as an enemy, as an enemy alien. Now, this is a, a problem because, as an enemy alien, you're not supposed to do this sort of thing. And from what I understood, the FBI or whoever was control of these things would come by on a weekly basis to make sure he was what he was supposed to be. <laughs> okay. Luigi, when your dad finally got Ferrari off the ground and the distributorship, what was the first Ferrari that was actually imported into the United States, and does that car still exist? Well, probably it exists. I'm not, I don't have the wherewithal to tell you who or where it is, but I'm certain that it exists, because it either was original, resurrected, but I'm sure it exists. And you asked what year this would have been that he imported it? Yes. 
I would say, no, nah, I'm going to take from memory of 1947, maybe 48. And I think the owner was probably Briggs Cunningham or Sam Collier. Briggs Cunningham was famous for his uh, uh, prowess in many things, but he was very famous for his uh, sailboat racing, and I believe he won the America's Cup. Again, it's something I'd have to look up, but here, his renown was in racing, really international racing of sailboats among industry affiliations. As a, let's say as a world-renowned sportsman, gentleman, and just a fabulous human being. Um, so was the first car a race car that came to the United States, or was it a street car that came to the United States? No, I believe it was a race car. A race car. Okay. So you mentioned Briggs Cunningham. Along the way now, now 1942 comes along, and you're born, okay? So now you're born into this really, really cool, I'm going to say, um world of these amazing cars and really like the infancy of this you know so like from the very beginning so now 1947 48 you're still a youngster and were you influenced by cars and gravitated to cars as a youngster right off the bat or was it did you have any idea of the impact of 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 your surroundings well let me start with the surroundings okay start the surroundings were a small apartment on 2nd Avenue in New York, and 2nd Avenue in New York was uh, cobblestones, and we were right opposite, I think it was the Queensboro Bridge, it was 61st Street and 2nd Avenue. The coal trucks had chain drive and wooden wheels, and so we're not talking about exactly uh, uh, fancy surroundings, because again, there was simply no money. So the, the car situation came in. <clears throat> it evolved as uh, <clears throat> the cars were brought into the U.S. I would know. I must admit, I went to Europe with my parents in 1948. <clears throat> and I was there in December when the first contract was signed with Mr. Ferrari in Modena. But then again, at five years old, what did I know? Very little. However, coming back to the U.S., when these automobiles would appear, uh, and Dad had uh, a half of a floor in the Fergus, which was on 55th, I think between 6th and 7th Avenue, something like that, and these cars would come in, and uh, again, we're not talking a great number, but some of them were just simply spectacular. You had a Dabola girl, which was teardrop today is just a fortune if any of you listeners would look it up it was a Talbot Lego teardrop and probably one of the most beautiful cars ever made and again this was among other automobiles that came through his hands you can't call them a dealership because it was a it was a, a oft a shop uh, I mean showrooms heard of so if you wanted something like this you got up in the elevator went to the third or fourth floor and there you have whatever was interesting to you 
Interesting, interesting. So when the cars were first selling, were a lot of the Ferraris custom coach work? Did people come in and say, well, I like that, but I'd like this, I'd like that? And then who were some of the coach builders that you're that uh, in the early days of Ferrari? Obviously, I'm going to take a wild guess and say probably Pininfarine, Scaglietti, a few people like that. Well, again, that's a multitude of questions. So. Okay. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> the first uh, the first question <clears throat> to answer, <clears throat> the customers, by and large, it was a two-way street. Depending on the client, he could order what he wanted, yes, because like the Aga Khan did then, was very specific as to what he wanted, and I have the documentation on that. So... <clears throat> For a very special customer, yes. But again, anybody could order what they wanted. But by and large, the automobiles would come over. They were coach-built basically by Vignali, Pininfarina, maybe Dia. But Scaglietti came into the picture way, way, way later on. Okay, okay. Um, so, all right, so now we're, we're selling Ferraris. The name's out there. When does North American Racing Team come to fruition? When did that start? Well, again, um, it probably started in 1956. Again, I can... I don't have it right in front of me, but it was... Uh, Just roughly, roughly. Yeah, yeah 56. 56, and I, from my point of view, the first photograph I took of one with the decal on it was probably a lime rock with a customer, a racer by the name of Bruce Kessler, whose mother was a fashion designer, and I can't recall the name, but the famous designer in New York. I think that was the first. I would actually have to go back and read somebody's writing as to the first automobile that brought out the car. Because my memory on some things is good on things that's a little sketchy. When you were younger then, okay, and now we have, so NART, which is North American Racing Team, did your dad, did NART, did the NART Racing Team race strictly in the United States or did they race also over in Europe? Oh, no, we raced, uh, well, there was a lot in the U.S., to be sure. Right. But but Dad's, Dad's bailiwick was uh, Le Mans. I mean, that was where everything in his life turned out to be mine was centered around the 24 hours of Le Mans. That's where, that's where histories are made and broken, reputations made and broken as well. And his history at Le Mans, after all, he won a total of times. Entered, I think he entered a hundred and fifty some automobiles at Le Mans. <laughs> so it's only normal that the focus would be on the European races. And after the war, that's where his own racing was centered in Europe. Uh, again, he never raced an NART car. He raced it with the Ferraris before they became. North American racing team, but the racing team started, I'm going to say, like we said a moment ago, in the mid to late 50s, and uh, yeah, very the main thing on NART was Dad's pension 
bringing out American drivers. That's where he really excelled. And most all the American drivers that became champions started with us. So that would be, um, let's see, Phil Conlon. Let's see, he was English, I think, but uh, Masson Gregory was he? He was American, right? And well, then you Phil. You have a bunch. Well, yeah, Phil Hill, Dan Gurney, Maston Gregory, uh, Shelby came out uh, driving for us really? in America. Oh, yeah. Uh, uh, in the United States, he drove. Uh, and you had a number of other drivers from the U.S. that got their reputations in Europe. Uh, Mario Andretti drove one of the very early times he drove. I think it was the first time he drove a Ferrari, actually. Uh, was for us. So the North American racing team really heated up in the 60s, and probably that's when they really came. Um, and that's, you mentioned the names, you know, Dan Gurney, Carol Shelby. I think Roger Penske also raced Ferrari at one point in time. Obviously, we know Phil Hill did. And uh, so then now you're, let's just say 1962, you're 20. How do you work and fit into this whole equation now what are you doing at this point in time you're going to school uh your dad has the the distributorship are you working within the distributorship are you working for ferrari um are you getting uh are you um getting your feet wet with racing what do, what are you doing at this time well <coughs> if you go before then uh yes i was in school in new york city uh a place called browning school which is uh, coincidentally the same school that uh, uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, the head of the bank, uh, J.P. Morgan. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. He went. In. It was well. My mother insisted on a good education, and you had uh, Arthur MacArthur, General MacArthur's son, that was there, and a number of very famous uh, parents. But the thing is. It gave you, it gave me at least a hell of a good basis uh, from which to progress, and progress I did to an engineering school in northern New York called Clarkson, and the prior education indicated to me that I wouldn't become an engineer of any note, feeling from my point of view that I could always hire an engineer far better than I could ever become. Interesting. All right. So then, how do you? At, at, so, following your education, then what was your next uh, your next step? Well, the next step was. Uh, fortunately, I liked. I really wanted to drive, and I became pretty good at it, and would uh, test drive the cars if you want, take the customers out, and to tell you the truth, Central Park was a bit of a test. Uh, tracked for me. Okay. Uh, any uh, so, so, are there any exciting or unusual or interesting stories while you were doing a test drive through Central Park? Now, I would imagine that it's probably heavily patrolled. So, and and Ferraris are fast cars. And if you're demonstrating a Ferrari, I'm sure that you're probably driving fast. So, you got a a quick little short. Story? Well, the policemen, a lot of them were on horses, and they only have one horsepower, and I had a couple of hundred. So oh, okay. <laughs> it wasn't a really fair thing, but by and large, 
<clears throat> you know, it wasn't all that, you know, the 60s, New York. But from my point of view, the 60s were where it was at. After that, the world ended. The 60s were magic in every way. Not only the cars, but you, you, everybody knows and refers to the 60s as just the super time of everything. Yes, there was Vietnam, and yes, there were some problems, but, you know, the 60s, the cars were terrific, the customers were terrific. You had a freedom that you just simply don't today. And the cars that we drove to lunch, like, uh, and I'm serious when I say this, a, a GTO Ferrari cost us $8,000 or something like that. A normal road car would cost a little bit more. And a GTO today is worth $60 million. And in those days, it was worth $8,000. So we used it to go to lunch, and it was just no big deal. So, uh, you know, people say today, don't you wish you had kept X, Y, and Z? I said, not really. I have a few. But the thing is, I drove them when they were new. It was much more interesting to drive them when they were new than today when they're 60 years old. Now, that's going to be, you just brought up an interesting question, okay? So if, if the Ferrari GTO was 8000 and the and the road car was maybe a few dollars more, back in those days, what was the markup in a Ferrari? Okay, so I'm, I'm just curious, because people have always asked me that. And, and really, the value of the car today, like you said, there's $60, 70000000 I think. Uh, uh, what's his name? From, McNeil from... Uh, from uh, WeatherTech paid seventy off the record unofficially seventy two million dollars for one of the Ferrari GTOs. One here just recently sold for sixty two. I was in a mil, or at the auction in Monterey when one sold for um, forty six or whatever it was. But aside from all that, back in the day with that car, what did that car actually cost to build, and what was the actual markup on on cars on Ferraris back then? Do you do you, do you have any recollection? Well, I don't know what it cost to build. I assume they made a profit, too. Right. Uh, well, let's see. I'm going to say if it listed for 12, it must have cost us somewhere around eight. Okay. So there's That's a, a guess. Yeah. I mean, I have all the documentation, but since this interview came up a bit, Quickly, I certainly don't have any of it oh. readily at hand. You're doing just fine, Luigi. I'm I'm tickled and thrilled to have you here, and I'm sure my listeners are too. So let me ask you this. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more about you. So then, later in the '60s, did you get more and more involved in racing? Because from '70 on, you actually you raced that I know of. Your first race was at Daytona. No, excuse me. Yeah, Daytona in 1970, and you were driving really an an ex outdated Ferrari 250 race car, LM, right? Wasn't? Well, the first races in those days, you had to uh, get a regional license, a right. national license, which didn't involve beans. It was that was pretty easy. It was just I don't know, maybe half a dozen races, something like that. Uh, certainly no more. I'll, I'll go with a figure half a dozen races. Okay. <laughs> now, I didn't invent the wheel. I simply took what Dad did in the 30s and converted it to the 60s. In other words, I convinced a young fellow from Connecticut to buy an LM, and in return, he could have the co-driver's seat. So I didn't invent anything. I just took a page out of Dad's book, and so the only car that was available 
was Omaha winning LM, but it had thousands of miles, and this poor little car was tired. And to it, when we got to Daytona, first of all, you had two guys that didn't know really anything about big-time racing, and certainly Daytona was a big-time deal, and our poor little car, it didn't really want to go out on the racetrack. It had, it had, it had been retired, so... The combination was rather interesting because I went around the first few laps and I, mean, I think a cab driver could have gone faster, but <laughs> I come back in and I told them, we had factory mechanics also that would come over and work with us, and I asked the gearbox specialist, I said, look, we have a problem, this car is jumping out of third gear, and he said, well, I'll see what I can do. And a couple of hours later, they actually had rebuilt, four hours, rebuilt the whole thing with every used car, uh, every used car that existed in the, in the inventory. And they said, you better, the first step, there isn't going to be a second <laughs> Well, we finished seventh overall, and the poor thing lasted 23 and a half hours, and about half an hour into the last part of the race, that was... It gave up the ghost, but I think we finished seventh overall. So I learned what the track was like. The car figured it out. My co-driver figured it out. And that's how we got into the, the big leagues, if you want. And quite honestly, I never wanted to race the little ones because I figured if you're going to die, die in a big goddamn race, not in <laughs> Lime Rock. You know, right, and that's the way it was. All right, then your next race that same year was at Sebring, and you selected a different car. I think you had what a Ferrari P three uh, three twelve P P P. Well, again, well, again, it wasn't a matter of selecting; it was what was hanging around. And the three twelve P now wasn't a clapped out race car. This was an honest to God, damn good automobile. It was a Formula One car with with a bodywork. This was a superb automobile, and I was driving with Tony Adamowitz. And again, I get to a track that I have no idea where it goes in an automobile that I'd never driven anything quite like it. And uh, we were, I think, we were doing fairly well. But our, our water pump, I think, went away, and the car uh, retired. But it was. That was a hell of a car. That was a one car with bodywork. It was just superb. Okay, and now and now we have the twenty-four hour Le Mans, which is the race that all GT racers aspire to. So tell us about that. And you're racing a three sixty-five GTB four, uh, a Daytona. Well, what we call in America a Daytona Coupe. Well. Again, uh, it's not just the GT drivers that aspire to this. This is all the damn drivers that are anybody in the world aspires to doing well. This, is, this isn't the back lot uh, Ken Lapper. This is the big league. This is Indianapolis, Le Mans, and uh, Monte Carlo are probably the, big, the biggest of the big. You can't go better than... Uh, and Indy, you can't go better than Le Mans, and Monte Carlo has a charisma all its own. And <clears throat> Indianapolis, well, we all know that. It's just a world of its own, and spectacular. 
though it may be. Now, Le Mans, the Daytona I raced, was not really a race car. It was really a standard, pretty much of a standard automobile with some seats in it, a little bit different, but basically it was a road car with racing tires and all of that. But I think that maybe the window glass was plastic on the sides, but it, by and large, it was a, a road car. And I think it may have been even the first Daytona to go racing. And <laughs> at any rate, we, I was so slow that Dad's coat driving on from before the war. I'm sorry to say, Mr. Panetti, but your son is too slow to qualify. <laughs> well, at that point, suicide really did seem like an interesting alternative. And, uh, and it was a very bad evening. Uh, I called up my first, uh, my then wife, and I said, I'm having a bad day. And I explained my bad. And she said, well, I don't want to add but I'm divorcing. So I said, this is not a good evening at all. And I got out the next day. And I mean, I, when I say I was, I was slow. And I eat out. I evidently qualified by the skin of my teeth. And I don't know that they give me a gift, but I think I, I got in the ring. Let's put it that way. But backpedaling since the moment just to get the feeling of the place, the first hundred feet of getting out of the place for the first time on that race track, and I mean, this is really 500 feet of the pits. The moment I drove out on that race track, I said to myself, what the hell am I doing here? My old man three times. Our car won. We have a hundred drivers of great repute behind me. What am I going to do here? I had no idea what I was going to do. And uh, that is a race start. Uh, it was very simple. Stay out of everybody's way. Let them all go by and trundle up uh, the ladder. We started second and we finished Fifth overall behind two 917 Porsches, two 512 M Ferraris, which were, I would say, the honkers of the whole thing. They were doing 230 miles an hour, and I'm barely doing 195 or something like that, hugging the inside of the straightaways. <laughs> On the mole sign, right? <laughs> right, but the other two guys are next to each other, so in one moment, we're three abreast, but when they went by, you knew you'd damn well been passed, I'll tell you that. <laughs> interesting, interesting. <laughs> All right, so then you raced, uh, and the first time I was aware of you racing myself was in 76, 77, 78, because I used to go to the 24-hour race all the time. And obviously, uh, Ferrari was there, North American Racing Team, everybody was there. And uh, so... How long did your racing career last? Not long. It went from, uh, as I said, uh, 69 through 73, because then we ran out of, the, we, we ran out of automobiles in terms of Ferrari producing uh, winning uh, non-factory automobiles. They produced some wonderful cars, but they were relegated to the, the Ferrari racing team itself and had had no intention of being uh, supplied to customers. 
Okay. So the times that you showed up at Daytona in the late 70s, you were just basically a co-driver and, and, and privateer cars, correct? No, I wasn't a co-driver then because I was, uh, well, first of all, from my point of view, uh, the racing had changed a tremendous, to a tremendous degree. Uh, we had boxer Ferraris, which had a wonderful silhouette. The bodywork was spectacular. <clears throat> but the engines <clears throat> were just not up to snuff because Ferrari didn't really put any effort into making it a competitive or a viable, well, competitive and viable are the same thing, uh, automobile. So from that point of view, uh, the racing did, but the only thing we did do <clears throat> was in 75, maybe, uh, we went to Bonneville, which I'll, again, I'm thinking a page out of text. He established records, uh, speed records in Europe. And I said, I always wanted to go to a speed record. So the only place that was really available was uh, Bonneville. Oh, yes. Yes. And Bonneville in those days had the straight line for the dragsters, <clears throat> but they also had <clears throat> an oval, which was a 10-mile oval on the salt, which people would run 12, 24 hours, 1,000 miles, whatever it happened to be, <clears throat> before the war. Uh, and to wit, uh, it was Ab Jenkins, who had an automobile called the Mormon Meteor, because he was a Mormon, powered by, uh, I think it was a Lycoming engine, I think. Uh, Curtis Wright, I'm not sure. <clears throat> but he established many, many records, and I said, I always wanted to go out there. So I decided that let's try and do this, and we had the old 512M and an old Daytona. So I said, how are we going to get the money? Because we didn't have any money, so the idea was to get them sponsored. And we reckoned it would take about $75,000 to do the effort with uh, two cars. So I went out about for uh, monies from CBS, Goodyear, and another company, I think Chesboro Ponds. And I got $25,000 from each of them with a proviso that if we didn't break the record, we gave them back the money. Retrospect, I think I must have been drunk. Or <laughs> but having said that, <clears throat> then we said, okay, who are we going to get to drive? So... Well, I called up uh, Graham Hill, who was an ex-world champion. I said, do you want to go out to the salt, and, et cetera? He said, sure. Um, I want a thousand dollars on a trip first-class airfare. Now, thousand dollars. Not bad for an ex-world champion. So then I said, okay, who are we going to get? We heard Graham Hill, myself, and I found an old driver from Mark. Before Milk Miller, he said, No problem. So then I said, Who are you going to get? A buddy of mine said, Well, you're international. Why don't you ask Paul Newman? So, literally went up and knocked on the door, and Joanne Wood took the door, and we went in and talked a little bit. And said, oh, what do you think Paul uh, would like? He'd like this? She said, I'm sure he would. Well, we got Paul Newman. And that's how it all started, and it turned out to be a wonderful event. 
you can actually CBS on Wide World of Sports. And if you go in your archives, you'll find Sports Illustrated did a nine-page article, and I think Catfish Hunter was on the cover, and the article Rock Age was, uh, let's see, it was Cool Hand, and we had a ball. We established records, we had a ball, but the first time we established the record, everybody took a deep breath because we didn't have to give back darn money. Luigi, we are up against the clock. I got about 30 seconds left. I've got to tell you this. This has been fascinating, but you know what? Would you be willing to come back next week so we can do part two? I'd love to have you back again to tell some more stories because we didn't even get through half of the stuff that I wanted to ask you. I don't know about next week, but you certainly can give me a ring. I don't know about next week. All right, well, let's play it by you. But at any rate, I want to thank you very much. It's been a thrill to have you on the show. Luigi, Merry Christmas to you. Happy New Year if I don't see you between now and, and the next event down in South Florida. But thank you very much for coming on our show. And then, uh, You're more than welcome. I want to definitely have you back for part two, so we're looking forward to that. In the meantime, I want to thank all my listeners for tuning in to Nostalgic Radio Cars. I want to thank my very special guest, Luigi Canetti, Jr., for coming on our show, spending some time with us. In the meantime, I want everybody to stay safe, drive carefully, and love your family. 